Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. What a disappointment this century has been. We have seen in every country a dissolution, a weakening of those bonds, a challenge to those principles, decay of faith, an abridgment of hope, on which structure and ultimate existence of civilized society depends. We have seen in every part of the globe one great country after another, which had erected an orderly, peaceful, and prosperous structure of civilized society, relapsing in hideous succession into bankruptcy, barbarism, or anarchy. Can you doubt, my faithful friends, as you survey this sombre panorama, that mankind is passing through a period marked not only by an enormous destruction and abridgment of human species, not only by a vast impoverishment and reduction in means of existence, but also the destructive tendencies have not yet run their course? and only intense, concerted, and prolonged efforts among all nations can avert further and perhaps even greater calamities. Tom Holland, who is that? Uh, well, it's not Liam Neeson. It's not. Um, you, know I, 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 well who, you know perfectly well who that is. <laughs> that is. <laughs> I, I think considering the amount of grief you gave me over my really very, very good impersonation of Liam Neeson. Uh, yeah. If you're if you're telling me that that was Churchill, that was Winston Churchill. I will believe you. The electors of Dundee in 1922. Give me my Dundee cake. Where is my Dundee cake? And he came forth, didn't he? He did come forth. He came forth, and he was beaten by a man called Edwin Scrimgeour, who is the <laughs> only person ever to have won a seat in Parliament, standing for the Scottish Prohibition Party. So what? So that, banning alcohol. Yeah. So that tells you just how. That's how highly the Scottish voters thought of Winston Churchill. Um, they were prepared to elevate Mr. Scrimger in his place. Well, the Scots have a long history of banning things that are fun. They do. Christmas. They didn't, didn't do Christmas, as we discovered. Well, and in Hogmanay this year. Yeah, well, yes, that's <laughs> true. So, um, so, yes, we're in 1922, aren't we? Um, we shall come back to Churchill in a little bit. That's, I mean, you know, I probably won't do another impersonation, but that gives you a flavour uh, it's almost like you're back in 1922, yeah. <laughs> standing on the streets of Dundee. A flavour of what was lost are to the you, world. Are you telling me that that when wasn't was... actually audio footage? When I was so cruelly denied the part of Paddington, as regular <laughs> listeners will know. Well, well Dominic, <laughs> yeah. on, on that theme, could I yes. just interrupt at this point? Uh, because um, people who've listened to a lot of the podcasts will know that you missed out on the chance to play Paddington. Yeah. Because you, this was on the back of, so the director of Paddington directed you in Edinburgh. He did. Did he In the mid-1990s, playing Thomas Beckett. In in the, yes, in Jean-Louis play Beckett. Yeah. Uh, And what was Tremendous performance. And the Scotsman came to to see it, is that right? It gave us two stars. I think it was out of five. Well, Dominic. Yeah. At this point, I just have to print off the review. Hold on. Oh, no, you're kidding me. Uh, Did he say two stars, Dominic? Uh, they did did you say two. the Scotsman gave you two stars? I believe they gave us two stars out of five, didn't they? No. No, they uh, didn't. And I'll <laughs> tell you how I know this. Because uh, <laughs> Rebecca Stubbs, right. friend of the show, yes. uh, keen listener, uh, someone who very generously uh, sponsored me to show her and her family around Roman London in aid of my benefit year. Um, she informed me just a couple of days ago that her husband was the producer of oh, that dear. of that show, <laughs> oh, and dear. he's kept the review. Well, must which have been I can, good then if he kept it, which I can now read. Please do. Uh, and uh, Dominic, I'm afraid the Scotsman only gave you a single star. Oh, one star! And I thought it gave it was you two. one star. In years to come, the <laughs> cast of Always Beckett will regale dinner guests about their opening night at the 1995 Fringe. Well, I do. They will, they will tell of the stumbled lines, fumbled set changes, <laughs> creaking chairs, creaking floors, creaking dialogue. Well, the dialogue's not happening. I mean, that's John Anne fault, surely. <laughs> oh, 
of the guitar that appeared in the third act. <laughs> Only to resound again as it hit the floor off stage in the fifth of the tourist who wandered in through an exit, followed ten minutes later by a mime artist in full, full makeup. Beckett is a complex play about conflict between Henry II and Thomas Beckett, between church and state, Norman and Saxon, honour and duty. And this is the line that you remember. Teenage bishops in trainers rarely convey the authority of the church. Acting styles from Brando to Hoffman to Woody Allen work against intellectual cohesion. I think I was probably Brando. A powerful performance from the central character of Henry II. Oh, come on. Could not rescue the play. And only threw it off balance. He's a young man well endowed in many respects, but cannot be named since the programme gives no cast list. The age old conflict between valour and discretion, perhaps. The companies are from various universities and will no doubt become lawyers, doctors, scientists, journalists, but not, I venture, actors. Oh, dear. that was Douglas Young for The Scotsman. Um, and, and he was right, well, wasn't he? Because you didn't become an actor. I didn't become an actor, but. Uh... I don't think he's really. I don't think he really got it. <laughs> the whole brilliant kind of subtle riff with the tourist yeah, and the guitar think, falling think, and, and the trainers. Fair, I think a lot of people would now say Scottish <laughs> arts criticism was going through quite dark days in the mid. Yeah, well, it's always like Virginia Woolf, isn't it? Or, or indeed, the Sporting Life on Ulysses. Yeah, it's that's very didn't, like get the, didn't get the point. Anyway, listen, we've blown massively off course there. Uh, what were we talking about? I can't remember. We were talking I... about. So we're about to talk about 1922. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so you um, yesterday, when Tom Holland wasn't reading out disobliging reviews of top actors, um, <laughs> we were talking about 1922, about modernism, about Bolshevism, uh, the, the birth of Italian fascism and so on. And um, I mean, obviously, one thing that was completely missing from yesterday's podcast, apart from you reading out ridiculously ill-judged <laughs> notices in Scottish newspapers, um, was uh, America. Yeah. And in a weird way, America is politically... Kind of impotent, isn't it? It is. It's kind of turned inwards. Um, it's not joined the League of Nations. So the Which was an American with, initiative. Woodrow Wilson, but basically the other Americans don't want to join it. So they've, they've rejected his idea. The president is now a man called Warren Harding, who is just very bland and, and boring Republican. He's a bit corrupt. I mean, his big thing is he promises a return to normalcy after the... That sounds um, familiar. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's... He's a man who basically makes no impact at all on the international stage. And that's partly by design, because America is obviously isolationist in the 20s. And actually, the things that, looking from outside, are really striking is obviously prohibition. I mean, we mentioned Churchill mm -hmm. losing. So prohibition has been um, underway since the beginning of the decade. And also the support for the Ku Klux Klan, which is extraordinary. So the Ku Klux mm -hmm. Klan has revived after, after D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, um, and in the sort of, I mean, we talked yesterday about the sort of paramilitary violence yeah. of the early 20s. And I think the, the Klan is America's equivalent of that. So it's got about a million members. Right. So 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 that's influ massively influenced by a Hollywood film. Yeah. And, and film, I, I suppose, is the big thing, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 and I guess that what you'd say is that, that um, America is maybe politically, you know, it's retreated from the stage. But this is the age where popular culture... It's, yeah. it's America is for the first time absolutely the popular flavor of the month. I think so. This is the jazz age. Yeah, you get to talk of Americanization. People are talking about the Americanization of the world um, and Hollywood, as you say. Um, so it's interesting, actually, when you look at 1922. A lot, three very significant firsts. Well, I mean, there are lots of significant firsts, but one of Charlie Chaplin moves into feature films from doing the short films he'd done. But Chaplin earlier. is the most famous man in the world, isn't he? He probably is. Yeah, I think he probably is. Um, so he has joined up with um, uh, Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford to form their own kind of studio. Um, he wants to move into serious feature films, but you also have Walt Disney doing his first animated right. films. And yep. Hitchcock in England. So yep. Hitchcock does a film called Number, I think called Number 13, that is now completely lost. Um, but you see... There's but a you say Disney is probably the biggest of, of those. Disney is the... It's the huge thing because well, you, you, little, run, space, so, little yeah. Red Riding Hood is the first, but but you got Cinderella coming at the out end of in, the, uh, at the end of the, the, year. End of the year, um, and you've and also you've got the kind of the escalating expense on blockbusters. So you mentioned Griffiths, who then 
from Birth of a Nation went on to make Intolerance. But yeah. then Intolerance gets lapped in this year by um, uh, Robin Hood, made by... Um, That's uh, Douglas Fairbanks, isn't by it? By Douglas Fairbanks, which is the most, I think, I mean, by far the most expensive film Almost one and a half, one and yeah. a half million dollars, I think. And you and know, makes a, it back. A fascinating thing about... Um, so, so but Robin Hood is the first film to be given a, a proper Los Angeles premiere. And the name of the... Do you know the name of the um, the cinema, Tom? It would appeal to you because it would allow you to talk about something that you, I know you're very interested in. Oh, what? The cinema is Grauman's Egyptian Theatre. And interestingly, oh, very nice that, is, segue. that is a month before something very close to your heart. Discovers, yeah. which is, in a way, I mean, purely as a news story. So as something to to get people talking that isn't, you know, about high politics or whatever. You'd say the biggest of, of the kind of, those the kind of news stories, possibly of the century, happens in 1922, which is the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun. Yeah, the biggest news story of the century. That's a very big claim. So it established, so, so craze is is a word that is first used in the 20s. Yeah, the, archi- right. the yeah. archetype of the craze is kind of tut mania, which is generated by discovery of, by Howard Carter in November 1922 of the first and only intact pharaonic tomb ever to be found. So full of wonderful things, as yeah. Carter didn't actually say, but his ghostwriter made him say. <laughs> so, uh, Car- you know, we, we talked about this in the Akhenaten episode, but Car- it's an incredible story. Carter had been toiling away for years and years and years on behalf of his his patron, Lord Carnarvon, um, and he goes into the summer of 1920, the, the digging season of 1922, and it's it, it's the last chance saloon. You know, Carnarvon's going to withdraw the funding after this. And on the 4th of November, they discover a step. And Carter's been looking for Tutankhamun's tomb, and they clear away the step. And by the 6th of November, it's clear that Carter has discovered what he what he's been looking for. And, of course, he can't go straight in, because he has to wait for for Lord Carnarvon. He wires Lord Carnarvon, and Carnarvon wires back, possibly come soon. (laughs) No! No! (laughs) Get here! And Carnarvon very rapidly realises exactly what it is that that Carter's found and what he means. So they zip over. And so 26th of November, they enter the tomb. You know, can you see things? Wonderful things. A gleam of gold. They know that they've they've found it. And on the 30th of November, the news is uh, splashed in the Times. Um, so it's exclusive for them. And the world goes mad for it. Yeah. In his book, we were talking about last time, Constellation of Genius, Kevin Jackson's book about the events of 1922. He says, doesn't he say that the 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 opening of Tutankhamun's tomb is basically the first mass media world event? That's, that's what I was struggling to articulate. Yeah. And, I- um, and I suppose it does start this sort of Egyptian mania, doesn't it? And I suppose it also... What it reflects, though, is that technologically you can have mass media world events. Absolutely, you? yes. And you know who gets elbowed out of it? I don't. Uh, from the press coverage um, is a guy called Arthur Eagle, who is being employed by the Daily Mail. Wow. The, the newspaper that we discovered last time created mm. modernism. Mm. Yes, but also the Daily Mail creates the legend of the curse because uh, Arthur Eagle is so furious at being not being allowed you know, uh, exclusive access to the tomb that he comes up with this idea that after Lord Carnarvon dies, that he's been felled by the curse. So another triumph. Uh... Well, you know what also <laughs> the Daily Mail also created, which is a huge part of the culture of 1922, and in some ways you could argue the year's most lasting and important legacy, radio. Right. So tell us about radio, Dominic. So, you know, people have been experimenting with radio broadcast and whatnot um for years um the key person in britain is a man called marconi who set up mm-hmm. the marconi company who's obviously an italian immigrant and um in 1920 uh he gets sponsorship from the daily mail to do a, the first live entertainment broadcast uh, which is done by dame nelly melba she sings the song and the marconi company broadcast it and this is one of their um, yeah, the Daily Mail are great, hugely into stunts at the beginning mm-hmm. of the 20s. So at one point, Lord Northcliffe invents a new hat, for example. And, <laughs> and they're always trying all these different ways. Why are they not doing that now? I think they probably are. I mean, I haven't invented a new hat for them, but, it, you know, give it Ooh, time. Get on with uh, it. Um, 
but yeah, the Marconi Company. Are, I mean, they're the they're the real pioneers in Britain of radio. So it's in early 1922. I think it's um, February actually, 14th of February, that you have the first regular broadcasts, which are from a hut, which I've been to, Tom, actually, because I did a, a documentary about this for for the BBC, because this is where the BBC mm-hmm. comes from. There, there's a hut uh, um, in a place called Rittle, which is outside the Marconi factory in Chelmsford in Essex. And a man called Peter Eckersley um, would broadcast on Tuesday evenings for half an hour. And they were the first regular radio broadcasts. In Britain or in the world? In Britain. Now, what's happened in America is that you have had this explosion of radio at exactly the same time. But in America, it's completely unregulated. So you have kind of maybe 100 radio stations by the spring. And then in the summer, you have hundreds of radio stations in America. Right. So it's like kind and of internet startups. Suddenly. It's exactly that. It's yeah. exactly that. Um, so a lot of people have asked questions about, you know, what is the most important invention or discovery that that is associated with the sort of modernity of the 20s. So Kevin Douglas asks about broadcasting. Chris Salmon says, which is the most important invention? And I would say the answer is, is radio, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's so interesting about it is in America, it is advertising funded. And there's this explosion of radio stations throughout the summer of 22. There's this sort of sense of chaos and free for all. And in Britain, the people observe this and they say, oh, my God, we can't have anything like this. This mm-hmm. is an absolute sort of this would be the worst possible thing. And they actually say, you know, it's an anarchy. It's chaos. And of course, that we were talking last time about that the the absolute ubiquitous fear of anarchy and the Bolshevism and all this kind of thing and the thirst for order at the beginning of the 20s. And I sort of wonder whether that's in, in people's, you know, they, they have this hatred of disorder and of uncertainty, unsurprisingly after the, what they've been through. And so the Marconi company and, and five of the other big companies get together and they want to set up a monopoly licensed by the government, which will be called the British Broadcasting Company. And that's what basically happens. And that's what happens. So they get together and by October they have formed um, what becomes basically the BBC and the BBC starts its first um, regular radio broadcast on the 14th of November 1922. And to basically to, to listen to them, you need a, a radio set, which, are, I mean, they're not cheap, and you have to pay a 10-shilling licence fee. And the licence fee... So right from the beginning, it's, yeah. the licence fee is there. The licence fee is there right from the beginning. What isn't there right from the beginning is complaining about the licence fee, which comes in later. Right. Um, but you know who um, who despises the BBC, Tom? Our old no. friend from the previous episode, Virginia Woolf. Does she? She does not believe in... Um, she's horrified by the idea of bringing high culture to the masses. Because she says, oh, they won't understand it. It'll destroy high culture. It's They're not all right. So Woolf complains at one point that the BBC's first director of talks, who is this pioneering, extraordinary woman called Hilda Matheson, uh, Woolf doesn't like her. She says um, there are two things wrong with her. One, she's got a wooden face... <laughs> Right. And the other Virginia Woolf's face famously. Yeah, of course. Virginia <laughs> Woolf all people. And then Virginia Woolf says the other thing she doesn't like her is that she lives in South Kensington. She the vulgarity. As, she regards as middle class, drab Common. and dreary and dreary. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's, she's she's a cracker. Yeah. A yeah. lovely person. Um so yeah, so so from a British point of view, I would say that, that that's absolutely the most important thing about twenty two is that Did you read about the first the drama? Broadcast on BBC. No, go on. Give me... It uh, went out on Christmas Eve. Yeah. And it was called The Truth About Father Christmas. Oh, my God. So what a I thing know to every- put out I- on Christmas Eve. I know everyone, everyone's um, put away their Christmas decorations, but a little festive, last final festive touch there. That was the first ever BBC what does it, radio does it, drama. Does it tell the real... What's it say? I don't know. I don't know what it's about. I'm it's guessing it's The lo- Truth About Father Christmas, story. That's probably lost now. Um, maybe, it's on, maybe it's on BBC Sounds with their unfair monopoly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything else on BBC Sounds worth listening to, Tom. Don't certainly think not. so. Certainly not no. history podcasts. No, just stick um, to us. Um, so anyway, 14th of November 22 is the BBC start broadcasting. And you know what happens on the 15th of November, Tom? No. General election. Ah. Oh. Very important general election. But we should come to that in a bit. We should talk about... Because Britain is still kind of top nation in the 20s, oh. isn't it? Well, are we? Well, this are is the we? question. This are is we? the question. Because is it not a, a straw in the wind that um, a, a naval conference is held in Washington? Yeah, and fair point. It's the first attempt at arms control 
an arms control treaty. And well, it's, it's yeah, it's 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 one of the but it's this in the context of the of the kind of the dreadnoughts and everything in the arms the yes, naval race yeah. before the first world war between Britain and, and Germany, and it's an attempt to try and regulate the size of fleets. Yeah, it is, uh, and Japan is kind of starting to muscle in exactly. Yeah, so it's agreed that um, the, uh, the 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 balance of power will be uh, Britain five, US five, Japan three. So. Yeah. Equal, equal billing between this. Britain and, and the United States. And in effect, that draws a line under the many, many centuries of British it does. naval supremacy. I think you're absolutely right. Because before the First World War, the British, the Royal Navy, had still operated what they called the two-power standard, which was... But they had to have twice the... Yeah. They had to... ships of the next two competitors. Exactly. And that they had... To, yeah, exactly. That they had to basically outmatch their, their two biggest competitors. And... Um, they ditched that, and they, as part of the Washington Naval Treaty, they agreed to scrap 24 ships that they're already planning to build, capital ships. So that's the point at which I think they, they realize then, then, you know, they're not, the, the Americans are going to compete. overtake them. Yeah, yeah. they're not going to compete. They're not going to compete in the same way. And is and there the, an aware, is there a sense that that's okay because America is likely to be an ally? That's a good question. I don't know enough about it to, I, I possibly. Uh, possibly. I think there's also a sense, though, of, I mean, they're desperately trying to cut spending at the beginning of the 20s. So Lloyd George's government has had something called the Geddes Axe, which is all about cutting spending. Because so they've obviously run up absolutely to yeah, astronomical debts to pay for the First World War. Um, and I think there is a, as you, as you alluded to, there is this really odd paradox that on the one hand, if you look at the map, the British Empire is pretty much at its greatest extent. So there's more pink on the map than ever before or since but at the same time there's this real there's already this sense of retrenchment so, well and, and also that the, the territorial integrity of the united kingdom of great britain and ireland is no more yeah that's right and actually that that's uh that's such a huge part of this story and something we haven't talked about at all in this podcast since we started it is ireland um and we should really go into it because it's such a, a sort of fascinating and, and tragic story. Do you think we should take a break before we get to Ireland, Tom? Or do you yes, think we should? Let's, let's, okay. let's take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about Irish independence and the Civil War. What is that sound high in the air, murmur of maternal lamentation? Who are those hooded hordes swarming over endless plains, stumbling in cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only? What is the city over the mountains, cracks and reforms and bursts in the violet air, falling towers, Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. T.S. Eliot, The Wasteland, we talked about in, in the first part. You didn't do it in T.S. Eliot's voice, that's all I'll say. Jerusalem, Athens, Alexandria, Vienna, London, unreal. Oh. Whoa, <laughs> unreal. Oh, I wish I hadn't said that now. <laughs> um, the, the reason for that, of course, is that um, Elliot is writing about the sense of a, a, an order cracking, great yeah. imperial orders, uh, great cities collapsing. And um, one of the areas of parts of the world where, and it must have informed that, where things are definitely imploding is, um, is the Levant. Uh, great cities of Jerusalem, and Athens and Alexandria are all embroiled in kind of convulsions in this year. Um, but he also mentions uh, London. Yeah. And um, on the 22nd of June in London, Eaton Square, to be precise, um, a field marshal called Sir Henry Wilson is shot. And he's shot by two men who had served in the First World War, in the Great War. Yeah. And one of them had actually lost a leg at Ypres, they shoot Sir Henry Wilson as he's coming back from opening a war memorial at Liverpool Street Railway Station to the dead of the Great War. And they shoot him because they are members of the IRA. Yeah. That's so they've been right. in the British Army. They're now in the Irish Republican Army. Um, and Dominic, this, this assassination on the streets of London of a, a, a guy who was actually Irish, he was... Uh, you know, vehemently anti-home rule, uh, anti-Irish independence. Um, uh, the Irish War of Independence had been going on. He was pressing the British government to um, to carry on. He said that the truce that ended the Irish War of Independence was rank, filthy cowardice. Um, and it's unclear, actually, who 
who yeah. was behind it. Um, but it, it, it has a kind of knock-on effect, doesn't it? It does, absolutely. It's a landmark in British and Irish history, even though in Britain, pretty much nobody, I imagine, listening to this podcast will remember it. I mean, he's a massive figure. He's the chief of the Imperial General Staff, Sir Henry Wilson. And the cabinet meets that night. Some, they take the, Tom, they take the revolvers that had shot him, the police, and they put them on the cabinet table. And Lloyd George and, and Churchill, look at these guns and they say, my God, you know, these are the guns that just an hour ago shot Sir Henry Wilson, who they both knew really well. So, And, and this is the trigger in some ways for the Irish Civil War. Right. Breaks out just but it also exists in the, it, as a kind of full stop in the process of negotiation that had led to um, Ireland leaving the free state as it becomes, leaving the United well, Kingdom yeah. and the partition and everything. So just, Dominic, just give us, fill us in on the background of, because a, a treaty is signed between the United Kingdom and yes. this kind of emergent Irish free state in 1921. And That's right. whether you accept this treaty or not, if you're Irish, becomes yeah. a key determinant. Okay, thanks, Tom. Um, so an Englishman trying to sum up the complexities of Irish politics in the early 20s. Well, you, in in, in, in like 30 you know, seconds, we, what could possibly go wrong? We, we've had so many Irish listeners say, why don't you do something on the Irish Civil War? And yeah. the, the reason for that is that it's, it's two your Englishmen... Terror. It's your terror. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, so I hope Irish listeners will forgive Dominic's summation that he's now about to give. So ever since the Easter Rising in 1916, um and particularly Terrible beauty in, is born. in the final years of the 1910s and the first years of the 1920s, uh, violence has come to the streets and, and, and the, the, the countryside of Ireland um, as the IRA had been fighting for independence from Britain. And at the end of 1921, to cut a very long story short, uh, the sort of Irish plenipotentiaries who have come to London have, have agreed a deal. They've been browbeaten partly into agreeing a deal, the Anglo-Irish Treaty, in which basically what was then called Southern Ireland uh, will get, well, well, all of Ireland actually, will get um, self-governing status within the British Empire as a dominion, rather like Canada, Australia. And so still acknowledging the crown. Yeah, uh, it'll be the Irish Free State. Now, the people who sit in the Doyle will have to swear an oath of allegiance to the king, uh, so the king will still, King George V will still be the king. They'll have to swear an oath of allegiance, which a lot of people don't like. And there's one other element that a lot of people don't like, perhaps they don't, which they know is probably inevitable, which is that Northern Ireland will be given a month to withdraw from the Irish Free State if they want and stay in the United Kingdom. And everybody knows that Northern Ireland, because of its Protestant population, yeah. will, will, will make so, that So Catholics choice. are about 20%. Is that right at that point? Um, Something like they, that. Well, I think possibly, yeah. possibly slightly more, but uh, yeah, you're right. That it, uh, there are, st- are obviously some areas of Northern Ireland that are that are very strongly Catholic. So a lot of people expect that there'll be some swapping um, after mm. partition, which actually a never theme really, that that we'll which doesn't happen, which doesn't happen in the Levant. Um, but yes, yeah, so basically the treaty is agreed. Now the the key thing. Um, uh, which, which will surprise people who don't know anything about Irish politics is that the the main figure on the Irish side, Eamon de Valera, has not come to London um, with his men to sign the treaty. And there are all kinds of theories about and, and, and speculations about why he doesn't do it. Some people say that basically he doesn't do this for cynical reasons because he doesn't want to be associated. Doesn't want to dabble his fingers in the blood of exactly. compromise. He knows that they'll have to compromise and he doesn't want to be party to it. So basically what happens is when they bring the treaty back, the, the key guy, by the way, in, in, in negotiating the treaty is a man called Michael Collins. And has he been the hero of a film? He's played by Liam Neeson. Yes, he is. Tom, can you do yeah. a Michael Collins? <laughs> I will no. find you and I will kill you. <laughs> is it that or as you would say, I will kill you? <laughs> uh, let's reverse. I should never have mentioned this. No, yeah, well, on, anyway, uh, if you want to hear Tom's version of Liam Neeson, you should listen to our podcast on the CIA. Uh, it's gone down as one of the most, the landmark <laughs> impersonations in modern cultural history. But anyway, Michael Collins was the head of intelligence uh, for the IRA. He's a, a, everybody in the British side says this is a tremendously impressive young man. I mean, he's he still, does look a bit like Liam Neeson, actually. He does. Yes. Yeah, he doesn't look like him. you. I, I don't no, think he don't, looks no. like you at all. No, um, I don't think you could play much. I mean, I, I can play Thomas Beckett and Paddington, admittedly, I could, only I to a one-star level. On, I could play him on a, a, a BBC 
radio drama because obviously could, the power of my <laughs> yes my accent and voice you could you could Is that convey, a pitch? are you pitching for work <laughs> i am in the, in the centenary production <laughs> <laughs> what could possibly go wrong so anyway collins comes back with the treaty de valera doesn't like it um so it passes the doyle the the irish parliament um but de valera it passes by seven votes, but de Valera doesn't like it at all. And de Valera actually campaigns against the treaty that his own allies have um, negotiated. So he basically says the IRA will wade through the blood of the soldiers of, of the of the soldiers of the Irish government to get their freedom if necessary. So basically, the stage is set for the Sinn Fein and the IRA to fall out among themselves. Because they're all Sinn Fein. They're all Sinn they're Fein. all Sinn Fein. So yeah. actually, Ireland has a general election in June. Uh, four days before the murder of Sir Henry Wilson, where there are two Sinn Féin parties running against each other, one pro-treaty, yeah. one anti-treaty, yeah. and the pro-treaty win. But what's also com- complicating things is that there's still quite a lot of violence on the ground. And in April, um, some anti-treaty IRA men have occupied the Four Courts complex in Dublin, which is this big sort of complex of courthouses. As a part of that, they think that by occupying these buildings, they will provoke British reprisals and that that will allow the war, that mean the war to, starts to start again, up again. Yeah. And that that will unite all the. Now, so they're there in the four courts and the British have not yet reacted. The British haven't reacted for once, unbelievably. But also, they, 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 they still have possession of Dublin Castle, I think. They yes. still have. There are still British uh, they, troops. Kind of British military, they've got exactly. guns and artillery and all kinds exactly. of stuff. Exactly. So the British are poised, but unbelievably for once. For once in the entire history of Ireland, the British <laughs> stay their hands. They straight. Exactly. No, so normally what happens, and even in the 70s, is the British make absolutely catastrophic decisions and are far too heavy-handed. But for once, they don't do anything. But that night after Sir Henry, you mentioned Sir Henry Wilson, Sir Henry Wilson is killed, and the British say, okay, we've had enough. They blame this, some people think possibly wrongly, on the men who have taken over this the four courts complex in Dublin. Wait, they blame is, it, is, is it not a possibility that Michael Collins was actually? Yes, it, it is. That he'd it given is the order, but then forgotten about it. It is a possibility. It's incredibly unclear who gave the order to kill Sir Henry, or Wilson. indeed if anyone did. That, that maybe yeah, these two exactly, men did it. Exactly right. Yeah. The British side, Lloyd George and Churchill, who were the kind of prime movers in the governments at this point in their relations with Ireland, they basically say, "Okay, enough is enough. You know, get your house in order. If you won't." kick these guys out of the four courts we're going to uh, we will do it for you and so on the 28th of june so that's what six days later well they actually that's it actually that's i've got well, do that you, wrong do you know, do you, it, they they give the they say to the british garrison it, it's time for you to act and actually the commander of the british garrison yeah, he says i'm not sure he about says that. i think we should wait and give collins <laughs> a chance to do it yeah. first and again so then, unbelievably a british so, general <laughs> but, uh, which collins then does and the, you know, at WB Yeats, we've had a lot of poetry in this. Actually, yeah. Yeats, we had we had Yeats in the, the episode on the Rubicon. Um, <laughs> did you see what Yeats, uh, it's quoted it by um, Kevin Jackson in Constellation Genius, what Yeats said on the morning of the 28th of June? I don't. You're going to tell me, though. All is, I think, going well. And the principal, well, I think Yeats spoke like that, didn't he? All is, I think, going well. (laughs) And the principal result of this turmoil will be love of order in the people and a stability in the government not otherwise obtainable. Oh, my God. um, Don't don't go to Yeats for political prognostics. Yeah, so he's a great poet, but but as a political pundit, he's maybe... He said that on the very morning that the war started. He said that on the very morning of the start of the war on the 28th of June when when Collins goes in hard against the anti-treaty men. Yeah, so Collins basically orders the recapture of the four courts and that starts a week of very heavy fighting in Dublin. And then basically the Irish Civil War, the the Irish government, so Collins, the sort of the pro-treaty forces quite quickly capture all the major towns, so Cork and Waterford and so on. But it, the guerrilla fighting goes on and Collins himself is ambushed on the 22nd of August um, and, is, and, is, and is killed. Cool, um, yeah. Outside Cork in County Cork. Do you, do you know who else gets um, shot at in the Irish Civil War? You're going to tell me who we've mentioned in this podcast um, yesterday. We mentioned yesterday. Who do we mention yesterday? Lenin. It was obviously Irish. Him. No, it's uh, Irish. Um, is it James Joyce? It's not James Joyce, but you're in the right ballpark. It's Nora Barnacle. So Joyce's uh, wife by this point, um, originally from Galway, and she she goes with her two children back to Galway. 
And obviously, <laughs> she's married to James Joyce, so they're not interested in international politics at all. Right. Um, they haven't noticed she, she, there's a war. So she, she goes to her, to, to her house in Galway and um, discovers that it's being used for target practice. So she thinks, oh, I'm not sure about this. So she gets on the train and then yeah. people start shooting at the train. Oh, my word. Man, and Joyce, a, Joyce was wise to stay in Zurich. Yeah, he was. And so she gets to Dublin and goes back to, to Paris. I think she never gets back to Ireland, I think. Well, you wouldn't, would you, if you no, were shot at? No, her, I think so. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so she has an experience of it. So it's quite a sort of grim story, all things considered. The death toll, I have to say, by comparison with some of the other death tolls we've been talking about in these 1922 podcasts, is, is it's not massive. I mean, probably more Irish people die in the, in the Civil War than in the War of Independence, oddly. So probably about 2,000 people die. And there are okay. also some pretty horrific killings in Belfast. So there are kind of what people call perhaps – with 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 pardonable exaggeration they kind of call pogroms of catholic civilians so there's a uh killing of the McMahon family in this what's called the arnon street killings in the spring of 1922 um but in general so about two two thousand people probably die in the irish war of independence and they're always but, burning down country houses aren't exactly they? a lot of country in, houses are kind in... of sacked and despoiled and so on but that actually pales by comparison with what's going on at the same time which yeah, kind of okay. monopolizes a lot of british interest in the Middle East. So, right. so although we were talking about Britain being sort of top nation, big empire, there's a constant sense of firefighting and, and kind of um, struggling to cope with all these crises. Sort of and, and if we're talking about 1922 as a year where the modern world has its foundations, I think that the Near East is really an example. Because basically going all the way back to the, you know, the empire of Cyrus the Great, the Middle East had been multi-ethnic, multicultural, imperial states, whether it's the Persian Empire, Macedonians, Romans, Arabs, Ottomans, yeah. and the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. It's it's yeah. the end of an era and the beginning of the era that we now live in. I th- ab- absolutely. I mean, the Ottoman Empire, when did the Ottomans start? 13th century? Yeah. But the empire is the successor to Byzantium. You're looking from 1453 onwards. And the Ottoman Empire has been the bulwark of, of order, I suppose, um, in the Near East, for as you know, what are, what are we talking? Seven. Well, it's I mean, seven hundred years. I mean, it's it's often very brutal. Uh, I mean, I think the Yazidis, for instance, would would not say that Ottoman imperialism was was anything tremendous, yeah. but it, like all the previous, you know, all the previous great empires, multi multiculturalism, multi ethnic cities are just the way things are so whether it's alexandria um whether it's smyrna or izmir as the turks call it uh, whether it's constantinople or istanbul as it will become um these are great polyglot cities full of merchants from across the levant so greeks and turks and jews and syrians and egyptians and they're all mixed up and what happens in 1922 is that you start to get the population swaps that you don't get in in uh, in ireland in this period where basically the the idea of ethnically based nation states or faith-based nation states starts to emerge from yeah. out of the kind of very, very ancient chrysalis of this idea of the, the universal empire. And it's a, bl- a horribly bloody process. It's an extra- I mean, it's extraordinary in some ways that the Ottoman Empire is still is still a, a legal entity uh, as late as 22, because they've lost the, the First World War. The British have taken over. The British and French have taken over in the Levant, haven't they? Yeah. So the British have been in Palestine, but I think... Um, you have a fact, don't you, about the uh, the League of Nations only approves the British mandate. In- yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, in in 1922, and I think that again, that's really in- so. So, the, 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 obviously, the um, the Balfour Declaration means that the British are um, well. They've got the Balfour Declaration, and they've got the promise that they've made to um, various uh, Arab princes. Yeah, and they attempt to balance this by you know setting up the Hashemite Kingdom, uh, Transjordan. So what will become the Kingdom of Jordan and allowing um, Jewish immigration into uh, Palestine. The Jewish population of Palestine 
grows by 10% year on year on year on throughout yeah. the 20s. But the fact that, that this gets rubber stamped by the League of Nations, I think is actually significant because Britain, Britain although it's captured Palestine um, as a result of it, you know, Allenby moving in in, 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 the, in 1917 in the, in the war, there is a sense that, 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 that Britain now and all the great powers are answerable to a kind of international standard of behaviour. And yeah. that is kind of new. And it's something in a way that, that, you know, if we're talking about Israel-Palestine has never gone away. The sense that this is a conflict that the United Nations and uh, nations around the world have a massive stake in, a moral stake in, is something that is first signalled in 1922 by the League of Nations giving its imprimatur to the British mandate. Yeah, I suppose what you can say is you, um, the great European empires are deferring yeah. to a sense of of kind of international morality, aren't they? But, uh, they're, but they're also they're know. also trying to provide a degree of international supervision to a process of population transfer yeah. that is on an absolutely massive scale. But what because, happens in Palestine is not what happens in Turkey. So that's the contrast, isn't it? That in Palestine you have this ethnic mix which is never ironed out, as it were, forcibly. So you still have to this day. Well, you know, well, well, but you are getting a kind of population swap in that you're getting Jews who are coming in yeah. and who are starting to buy land. Up. I mean, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's, it's a very, very slow motion population swap that will obviously be expedited by the events of the Second World War. But what but, you don't but, have is, but what you, but, but you do, yes, but but you don't have the kind of massive instantaneous population swaps that you do get in 1922 between Greeks and Turks. I mean that that is a story that it's very hard to read without feeling this tremendous sense of kind of loss and tragedy on both sides. Absolutely, nothing. Yeah. I, well, well, again, you know, we're talking about how old the roots of this order are in the Levant, and there have been Greeks, you know, on the Turkish coast of the Aegean. Since the time of the Trojan War, yeah, I mean, just I mean, think you know, when we did for our three thousand years, for three thousand years, the great podcast, Alexander marching through all these cities, yeah. Sardis, Miletus, Halicarnassus, yeah, and that world is about and Constantinople is, was, you know, was was, was a, a Greek speaking empire, yeah, uh, and all of that is lost. The, you know, and in a way, the Greeks bring it on themselves. I mean, they, well, they you know, yeah. it's it's a it's a kind of land grab. They're trying, you know, after they've been on the Allied side, the Ottoman, the Turks have lost. And the Greeks say, you know, we what we want as our reward is to revive Byzantine Empire, basically. You know, well, we, I, we, I, I we mean, wa- I suppose you can see it from. Of course, everything but, is up for grabs in the yeah. collapse of the Ottoman Empire. But they no overreach. one knows what's going to happen. Um, the they Greeks overreach. have invaded. Yeah. They have overreached. They've marched. So, in 1922, take- they get defeated at the Battle of Sakaria, which is the they furthest do. that they get into Anatolia, and they're defeated by uh, Mustafa Kemal, who was the hero for the Turks of, of, Gallipoli. of Gallipoli. Yeah, and he then drives the Greeks back, and the great, great tragedy, horror, atrocity is in September the burning of Smyrna, Izmir. You know, one of the great, great melting pots of the Mediterranean, which gets absolutely wiped out. Yeah, about 100,000, I mean, we're talking about death tolls, 100,000 people probably died yeah. in the in the, the sack of Smyrna. So basically what happens is, as you say, the the Greeks have extended, overextended themselves, the Turks pushed them all the way back to, the, to Smyrna, and then the, the Greeks and the entire Greek and Armenian population of Smyrna and all international citizens are on the quayside, basically. And the city is burning, and they a lot of them don't have time to get away. And uh, Mustafa Kemal does give orders to his army to restrain themselves, you know, and don't kill any civilians and stuff. But like as both armies had throughout this war, I mean, it's an incredibly horrible story. Both the Greeks and the Turks had committed endless atrocities um, against civilians in the course of the war, as is inevitable, I suppose, when you have a war that is driven by a kind of sense of national yeah. and ethnic sort of yeah. self-affirmation. And I'm sure that that's, you know, that's what Eliot is is kind of a, a, alluding to in his image of, of cities, unreal cities, cracking and, and reforming. And well, there's, a, the there's, a, there's, a, there's somebody from Smyrna in the Yeah, Mr. Eugenides, the Smyrna merchant. Yeah. So there are echoes of it throughout the wasteland. Um, yeah, but I, I think, you know, that that, that, that establishes the, the geopolitical contours 
of the Near East, uh, of Greece, of, Greece, of Egypt, yeah. uh, of Israel, of Palestine, um, that, that we, we still have. But what it also does, Tom, in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that, in a really surprising link, it helps to create modern British politics. Okay, so, because, so tell me about that. So, so this is a, a really fascinating story. So Mustafa Kemal has taken Smyrna. Um, he has basically taken Ionia, you know, the, yeah. the region that the Greeks wanted in Asia Minor. There's one bit left, and that is Constantinople and the area around Constantinople and eastern Thrace. And that is being occupied by the Allies, by the British and the French. And at the end of September, Mustafa Kemal is closing in on this area. Um, so this is in some ways the last act of the First World War. Mm -hmm. um, he's closing in and the British are there. And Lloyd George and Churchill, who I talked about before with Ireland. So Lloyd George is the prime minister. He's the former liberal. Well, he's still a liberal. But he's basically sold out most. He's a, I mean, he's not a friend of this podcast. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> no, Lord no you're, you're very hostile to him. He's, he's a, just basically an absolute, I, to my mind, an absolutely terrible man who's a Hemingway adored him. Yeah, but people, Hemingway adored kind of great men, didn't he? Yeah, uh, as Churchill did. Um, uh, Lloyd George has, has has abandoned a lot of his old kind of Welsh radicalism. He's become a very establishment figure. He's been prime minister too long. He's incredibly corrupt. And, and and they sit there in Downing Street and they say, if the Turks attack, we must go to war. And so two interesting things happen. First of all, they say, we and the empire will go to war against the Turks. So we'll now, you know, we'll throw Britain. Uh, Churchill, who has completely not learned his lesson from Gallipoli. Yeah, so like, like crack. Yeah, let's have another <laughs> go. Well, brilliantly last time. And, and one interesting thing that happens is that Canada, Mackenzie King, the Canadian prime minister, says, you know, they say, they say, just to check you're all on board with this. And he says, no, I'm absolutely not on board at all. Britain must stop assuming that Canada will just pitch up and yeah. throw our men into battle. So that's an, a, you know, talking about straws in the wind for the empire. That's a really, really, um, telling and important moment that Canada is not going to be just an appendage to Britain yeah, anymore. A blank check. But the second thing is, um, Lloyd George is leading a coalition government and many of the Tories are absolutely sick of Lloyd George. They, they think he's corrupt. They think he's dangerous. They think he's would be a dictator and they don't want to have a war, um, with, with, um, with Turkey. Lord George decides he wants an election and he wants the election. And, he, and is the election it. fought around this issue? No, it's not going to be fought around this issue because it's going to become, it's becoming increasingly clear that nobody really wants this war, but he was, he decides to go for an election anyway. Um, the Tories are due to have a meeting on, where is it? on the 19th of October at the Carlton Club. You know this. Mm -hmm. You're a great man for clubs, Tom. <laughs> St. James's Club, just mm -hmm. down from your club, Brooks's. Mm. Um, they're going to have a meeting of all the Tory, the Tory sort of uh, backbenchers and so on to decide, will they fight the election? In 1922. In 1922. Yeah. The 19 mm. the, the, the I see where this is going. The 1922 committee is today the sort of the, the caucus of Tory backbenchers and it takes its name ultimately from this moment. So they meet and their leader, Austin Chamberlain, who is the son of the great Joseph Chamberlain and who basically mo is a pale shadow of his father who models himself on his father and orchid in his buttonhole. He says, well, we should absolutely back Lloyd George. He's a tremendous fellow and all the rest of it. And now finally making his podcast debut, one of the great men of history, uh, the Midlands' his own Stanley Baldwin. Hey! He stands up and says, no, we shouldn't fight it with Lloyd George as the leader. Lloyd George is a dynamic force, and a dynamic force is a terrible thing. That's very Balfour. Um, and uh, the Tories Sorry, vote. Sorry, did I say by... Bal Balfour? I apologise for that. <laughs> what did you say? I said Balfour. Balfour, oh, how could you do that? Oh, sorry, he makes sorry. his he makes his appearance in the podcast, and you mistake him for Arthur <laughs> Balfour. Ruin it! I'm so very bad sorry. Moment. I'm so sorry. So anyway, sorry. Baldwin helps to carry the day. The Tories agree to to leave the coalition. Austin Chamberlain is out as the Tory leader, and the unknown Prime Minister, as he's later called, Bonner Law, born in Canada, um, Scottish extraction, uh, self made man. He comes in as Tory leader, and there's going to be a general election. And the 1922 general election is one of the absolute landmark British general elections. So it happens in November, the, the day after um, the first radio broadcast. And I think, to, to general surprise, the Tories win a massive victory. They win 344 seats. 
the Liberals, who had been the party of government taking Britain into the Great War, they're mm -hmm. nowhere because they're divided between Asquith and Lloyd George. So Asquith gets 62 seats, Lloyd George gets 53. The Liberals are split, doomed, destroyed by the electoral system. And it is another party coming another up on party. the left flank. It is the Labour Party, which ah. has never before been one of the top two parties, comes second under its leader, J.R. Clines. Now, J.R. Clines is utterly forgotten. I, 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 I would never bet, heard of him. I would bet that of the listeners to this podcast, of the of the tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of listeners to this podcast, <laughs> very millions, <laughs> none but a handful will have heard of J.R. Clines. So he's um, he's from Lancashire. He's an Irish background. He worked in went to work in cotton mills at the age of eleven. Learned the Bible and Shakespeare and Milton by heart. Great. He is a man. That's the kind bring, of Labour leader we want. He is the kind of Labour leader you like. Um, and he leads them to 142 seats. And from this point onwards, I mean, there are going to be two more elections in the next two years. But ultimately, from this point onwards, British politics will become a fight between a middle, a, a middle class and, and Tory party that wins maybe one in four working class votes and a Labour party that wins the other working class votes and the kind of old high minded kind of bohemian types who had voted Liberal in the past. Uh, uh, that's so this is be the strange death of Liberal England. This is the death of Liberal England. But the great commentator on politics in this period, Tom, you know who the mm. great commentator on British politics in this period is? Is it? Uh, yes, I do know. And I'm not going to spoil it. So you tell me, Dominic. Yeah. So he says, he, uh, they put it this way. <laughs> there are four sorts of people trying to get to be rulers. They all want to make things better, but they want to make them better in different ways. There's conservatives and they want to make things better by keeping them just like what they are now. And there's liberals, and they want to make them things better by altering them just a bit, but not so that anyone would notice. And there's socialists, and they want to make things better by taking everyone's money off them. And there's communists, and they want to make things better by killing everyone but themselves. And you know who that is? Just William. It is. Well, it's just it's it's William Brown's friend Henry, who is oh. the brain box of the gang, the Outlaws. And and just William, a lot of British listeners this podcast will know he is the ultimate naughty schoolboy and he's created in 1922 by the writer Richmond Crompton very conservative novelist and she writes these stories for um, women's magazines and they become tremendously popular and sell end up selling millions and millions of copies kept Martin Jarvis um, <laughs> work for the rest of his life the rest of his life uh, he does and, the brilliant audio books of them and William is an absolutely tremendous and and the stories He's a tremendous creation. The stories are the most brilliant view, viewpoint, sort of window into the um, everyday anxieties of kind of middle England in the 1920s and 1930s. They're full of all these sort of do-gooders and League of Nations enthusiasts and prohibitionists who are always moving into the house next door and trying to get William involved in their schemes. Mm. And William always undermines their schemes and destroys them and it ends up with all the boys having a massive fight. <laughs> yeah it's they're, yeah they're great they're great well i think that's a wonderful note on which to end our tour of 1922 and dominic you have completely convinced me that the modern world began there is just one there is just one last question yes is there i know not? what it's going to be i know okay. exactly what's going to so be. um it's it's from a friend of the show uh and a, a titan of tech would you like to read it out it's from mark andreessen the uh who i think is the co-inventor I think he would say co-inventor. Let's we'll call him the inventor, the inventor. of the uh, of the web of browser, the browser yeah. of Netscape. And he says, "How long did the modern world actually last?" I nominate approximately 1965, but I'm curious what you guys think. 1965 is quite a good call, I think. Um, I mean, it, it depends how you're defining modernity, doesn't it? I mean, would you would end in well, Mark Andreessen would. I mean, you know, I mean, he knows his tech. Yeah, um, and I, I'm not qualified to to judge on that but i would have thought that actually the, the continuity be between say radio and the internet is i mean it's kind of recognizably so you think there's a continuity not i a, do think there's a continuity. you don't think the arrival I of do, the kind I of microprocessor or something is a i think it, it sped up the trends that were already there and i think yeah. that hollywood is is you know bbc uh that, that a lot of the cultural trends are cultural and technological trends i think they they modernity does carry through i think the idea of of, of modernism is dead i agree it gets that. replaced by yeah. postmodernism, post doesn't it yeah. in, and, and it is in 1965 so the idea that, that there is a kind of great tradition that you can trace through is gone uh, and we live in a maybe now a post postmodern world but um see i would i would probably agree with you about that tom i think that um 
I mean, let's say you're talking about, think about it in terms of tech and in terms of kind of popular culture. I think what you definitely have from the 1920s through to probably the round about the 1980s, 1990s, is you have a kind of monopoly of culture and a monopoly of technology. So, for example, mm. in Britain, the BBC basically create, and I would say create a national mass culture for the first time, a sort of um, a recognizably modern national mass culture where people in completely different parts of the country are watching and listening to the same things, sharing the same cultural references, where there is a unified national kind of cultural vocabulary and so on. And with something like Hollywood, you have the same thing. So you can, you know, if you've seen Star Wars in 1977, yeah. everybody else has seen it too. If you've seen Gone with the Wind, yeah. everybody else has seen it. That doesn't exist anymore. We have a much more fragmented culture yeah. that has moved away. The gatekeepers are gone. The yeah. monopolies are, ge are generally Completely. gone. And I think also there's a kind of ideological suspicion of, of that kind of culture. So, yeah. I, I mean, both Ulysses and the Wasteland depend on a shared culture that people will will recognise. On a canon, because they're engaging on, on a canon, with a canon. On a canon. Yeah. Whereas now that the very idea of a canon is regarded as oppressive and white yes. supremacist and, uh, and, and <laughs> yeah. so on. Um, and in, in that sense, uh, modernism, you know, is rather than being the, the, the kind of the grave digger of, of that idea of a canon and a great tradition and the, you know, that, that line of, of what would now be called dead white European males, yeah. uh, handing out great works is kind of the last hurrah for that tradition. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And obviously you take something like the BBC began in 1922. The BBC is not an, an antidote to the canon. It absolutely enshrines the canon. Yeah. produces endless iterations of it, but is now in 2022 being left behind by the fragmentation yeah. of, of, of global culture. The other thing I suppose I would say is so much of what we talked about is about, is about the Russian revolution, the reaction to the Russian revolution and the rise of communism, and the idea of a struggle, a titanic struggle between communism and capitalism that runs right through politics from the early 1920s to the end of the 1980s and then disappears pretty much well of course the other thing the other thing that's changed uh, and again i think this idea that the modernity of 1922 does kind of end is that uh in this we've done two episodes haven't talked about china haven't talked about india yeah haven't really yeah. talked about japan haven't talked about africa yeah Though, you know there are we now live we can talk about 1922 from an almost exclusively american and european perspective and that may reflect you know the blinkered our, our blinkered perspective but i don't think it does entirely i think it reflects the fact that this was still a world that was ordered by yeah. the european powers and by america and you have do have japan kind of emerging in the distance um but that's no longer the case uh we now live in a multipolar world that would have been unimaginable to to people in 1922 yeah i suppose tom 100 years from now will 1922 seem important maybe it won't because the focus will have changed so much. Yeah, I think so that's true. The British Empire will seem such a relic. Joyce and Elliot will no longer seem like yeah. huge cultural titanic figures in the way yeah. that they do now. Well, I'm not um, sure they even do now. I mean, I think that, that particularly Elliot is regarded with high suspicion. Do you think so? As, yes, as a kind of you know reactionary conservative. And, yeah. and even Joyce is... He hasn't been cancelled, surely. No, he hasn't been cancelled, but, but you know, he's, a, he's a dead white European male. He is, it's true. So... Um, however, I think what will be remembered, and rightly, uh, what will be rehabilitated, is that landmark performance that you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. <laughs> the one star the, uh, review. See, I, I thought we had two stars. No, I'm afraid. I'm afraid. You know what? I'm going to post that review on Twitter. I think that review, I think it's I'm going to post a, that review on Twitter so that people can see that I'm not lying. I think your newspaper copies just faded or something. I'm sure there were two stars. <laughs> well, I'll post it and li listeners can judge well, for themselves. I, let's hope. And, that, and you know what else? Where else I'll post it? I will post it on the Discord chat. Oh, very good. For Rest is History Club members. Yes. And I might also post some other things that Rebecca sent. Oh, uh, what? That, no, yes, there, there, there are. Well, this your your um, playbill and your poster oh, right. and all kinds of things. Do I look good in it? You look fabulous. Uh, so I'm going to post that exclusively on the Discord. So if you want to see those, you can join members. the rest. Of I mean, the I'm history worried club. that's actually a disincentive. But <laughs> no, actually, on the incentive front, <laughs> just one so. quick reminder: you will get if you join the Rest is History Club bonus episodes. RestIsHistoryPod.com. You get bonus episodes. You get a live stream. You get ad-free episodes. Access to the archive. You get all these kind of 
goodies. And if enough people join, of course, we never need to promote it again on the podcast and everybody will breathe <laughs> That's true an enormous well. sigh of relief. And we're doing our next live episode we're doing on reputations, aren't we? Yes, on historical reputations. We haven't quite fixed the date for that, but it'll be next week or so. Um, and that will be on reputations, how they evolve, how they change, who goes up, who goes down. Yeah. Well, a lot of the people we've talked about on these episodes. Yes, are, exactly. I mean, yeah. Churchill is a classic example. Anyway, yeah. um, we shall deal with this in due course. So thank you so much for listening. Have a very happy 2022. Let's hope it works out rather better for us all than 1922 did. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it my brain is occupied by the romans it's like gall if you want to hear more of my chat with tom give walking the dog a listen this week and while you're there you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of ricky gervais jack whitehall and jimmy carr what's that raymond yes the rest is history did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history no you weren't in it most spoilt dog in history maybe